0: we do them. This morning, once again, we have the great privilege to baptize a covenant child. Several weeks ago, I pointed out that we were able to see in two separate baptisms the means of being legitimate for baptism, the conversion of a non-covenant member and then birth into the covenant home or a covenant home. At that time, we looked at Romans 11, and I want us to look there again, so turn to Romans chapter 11, starting in verse um, 11. So, Romans 11, 11, and we'll read 11 through 24. Romans 11, starting in verse 11, the word of the Lord reads, I say then, having Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are by by flesh, and save some of them. But if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because the un, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? Thus far the reading of God's word. Um, so since chapter 9, Paul had been dealing with Israel. That's the topic that he's dealing with. So he's dealing with the old covenant saints. He's dealing with visible Israel, the people of God. And so uh, Israel doesn't get a pass, right? They have rejected the gospel. And he's shown already in chapter 9 that God is sovereign and just. And so in chapter 10 he shows that there's no pass for Israel. Then in chapter 11, Paul shows first that not all Jews were rejected. He was a Jew. Second, that it was not final. Now this is the point of what we, we just read. Paul wants the Gentiles to understand that the Jewish people could come back in to their own olive tree. So let's look at this text. The fall was riches, how much more their fullness, verses 11 and 12. They had not fallen completely from God's grace. And if they had fallen, bringing riches to the Gentiles, what would their salvation be? It would mean more glory and praise. At this point, we can think of the parable of the prodigal son. Paul uses and magnifies his ministry to the Gentiles to make jealous his fellow Jews. Verses 13 through 15. He says the reason that this was important was because it may cause some to come out, uh, come in to the church out of jealousy. This was his desire, as it would be life from the dead. The root is holy in verses 16 through 18. Paul begins to, to give an illustration. And this is where I want our focus to be. Remember the topic is Israel. So what what we're talking about here is Israel. We're talking about the Old Covenant Saints. Right? That's what we're talking about. That's the subject. So the illustration here will be the Old Covenant Saints. Okay? So we see this language of holiness for the branches. And it's the same language we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul calls the children of at least one believing parent holy. He's holy. Alright, so you have one in the church who's baptized, and they believe, and they attend, and they worship, and they have a child with an unbeliever. That child is considered to be holy. Now, not holy as in righteous, because that is the wrong understanding of that word. We misuse that word all the time nowadays. We say holiness means righteousness. No, holiness means outside of or other than everything else. God is holy not because He's righteous. He's righteous because He's righteous. He's he's sinless because He's sinless. But He is holy because He is absolutely, completely other than anything else in all the universe. There's nothing like Him in all the universe. So that makes Him holy. So when He, through His apostle, calls children... Holy, what he's saying is they're not like the world. They're outside of the world, they're in the church. They're holy. So the branches, if the roots holy, then the branches are holy. What he's saying is if the church is outside of the world, then so is every person who is attached to the church. Every branch that is connected to the natural olive tree is holy. You're not of the world, though you're in the world. Right? Okay. So, not a statement of redemption, but a a statement of separation. Paul says, if some are broken off and you are grafted in, do not boast. So we have here a picture that will be uh, filled out for us in our next section. But what I want us to recognize is that whatever the root is, people can be removed and others added. And those grafted in are supported by the root and they stand by faith. Alright, so let me clarify this for you. We'll unpack this just real quickly. Okay? So, if you are drafted into something that is associated with Israel and the church, and you can be cut out of that, then we know that it is not salvation. Because if you are truly redeemed by the blood of Christ, you can never be unsaved. You cannot fall so as to fall away from grace utterly. That language is used for apostasy, and we'll see that. So there are only two types of branches, verses 19 through 21. Paul goes on to show that we should not think too highly of ourselves. Just as the natural branches could be broken off, so could the ones grafted in. One is removed for unbelief, and the other remains by faith. This points to the perseverance of the saints and to apostasy. The natural branch can leave or fall away just as the unnatural branch could be grafted in to the tree. Notice that the unnatural also could be removed even after they had been grafted in. You could join yourself to the church and then begin to believe heresy and quit coming, and you would apostatize and you're no longer a part of the church. God is cutting you out. Paul reiterates the warning, verses 22 through 24. Some could be cut out and others grafted in, so they needed to stay in the goodness of God. God can be severe to the apostate, therefore, we all need to be careful to remain in God's goodness. Notice that this could not be talking about salvation as we've said. Never is it taught that the unbeliever could be saved and then fall out of or walk away from that salvation. You didn't put yourself in God's hands, you can't take yourself away. Out of God's hand, right? John, uh, In John, Jesus said, nobody can pluck you from my hand. So if you're really in Christ's hand, you can't be removed. Not only that, one more, let's go even greater. God is greater than all, and you can't be removed from His hand. So it's not salvation. It is community. It is association. It is connectedness, too. You've taken the name of Christ and you are associated with the church, making you holy, that is, separated from the rest of the world. So, rather what the Romans are being told is that they were were brought into the root and could be removed again if they had unbelieving hearts. Same thing we learn in Hebrews. Notice what kind of tree that Paul says this is. It's an olive tree. This is the symbol of Israel. She is God's olive tree. This is why we have an olive tree on our sign and on our order of service. So this passage points to two ways to enter the covenant. We have two classes of candidates for baptism. One, the wild olive branch, raised outside the church, grafted in through profession of faith, and into the cultivated tree and receives the sign of the covenant. This is what we're most familiar with in our culture because we were Baptists, And most of the people around us are Baptists. And we love our Baptist brothers because we were just like them at one time, right? We believed the same thing they did. But the thing that we have to understand here is the only reason that that's what we see mostly in Acts is nobody was in the covenant community because all of the covenant community, according to Jesus Christ, had walked away from the faith and were apostate. He said, I'm leaving to you your house desolate. And so there was a new covenant community, a new bride being joined into, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, he's made made the two men one man through Jesus Christ. The Gentile had a wall of separation, could not come into the church. That separation has been removed, and now the two have become one man. The two have become one man. There's not two brides of Christ. He'd He'd be sinful. There's only one bride of Christ. And so, that's what we see here. So, the other, as today, being born into the household of believing parents, has a right to the sign by their profession of faith. They are with us one people. Our children are associated with us and with Christ, and they take His name on themselves through our profession of faith by water baptism. So... Just as in our passage, there are two ways in, and we have been blessed to see them both this year. Professing believer who had never been baptized as an an adult was baptized. And now we've seen several covenant children baptized, and we will see that again today, if the Parkers will come forward. I praise God for this stage. Because it seems like we get taller and taller people every time we do baptism. It's as if God's laughing, which he is. He thinks it's funny too. All right, so we're going to do things a little bit different. They're not members. And so the part of our oath-taking, we're not going to do until we know that they're going to be here. So that'll be a little different from us today, okay? So the ordinance of baptism, I want to remind you That this ordinance of baptism is administered by the church, by the command of Christ. That the nations should be converted, baptized, and taught all that Christ has commanded. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the resulting regeneration, adoption, and cleansing from sin is here symbolized. By baptism, we are initiated into the covenant community and made, made members of the body of Christ. So let us pray together. Asking that God would honor his name today in in this uh, covenant baptism and that he would pour out great kindness upon us by showing us his covenant. Let us pray. Blessed and most gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, God, that you have called us into covenant with you. Lord, you made covenant with your Son before time ever began to die for a people, to save them from their sins, to show your mercy, to them and to the world. Thank you, God, that you have invited us and initiated us into the covenant through this bloodless (coughs) sign. Thank you, Lord, that all the blood that has to be spilled to save us from our sin has been spilled by Jesus Christ. And we pray, God, that you will apply it with your Holy Spirit not only to us, but to this child and to his family. May you be glorified in the rest of his life, uh, her life, And may she glorify you in all that she does from now until she dies and and spends eternity with you. We pray, God, these things in your blessed and most holy Son, Jesus Christ's wonderful name. Amen. you ready to take your bow? Okay. Do you acknowledge your child's need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you trust in God's covenant promises? On his, uh, on her behalf, it's in there. I'm sorry. <laughs> on her behalf, and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus for her salvation as you do your own? Mm-hmm. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you're, that your endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with and for her. That you will teach her the doctrines of our holy faith and that you will strive by all the means of God's holy appointment to bring her up in the loving admonition of the Lord. On the basis of the faith expressed here, do you resolve by the grace of God not only to bring her up as your natural daughter, but also from this day forward to to consider her a sister in the Lord. As a joint heir of all of God's covenant blessings. You have heard your husband's vows. Do you agree with them? And do you take them along with him? And you did. Amen. Alright. So. What is the child's Christian name? Mary Lou Kate Parker. That's a lot. Mary Lou Kate Parker. In the name of the Father. And of the Son of the Holy Spirit. I baptize you. She's going, what? Are you? <laughs> Let's pray. Dear most gracious heavenly father, we thank you, God, for this child. We pray, Lord, that you will bless this child, strengthen her, grant to her all the blessings of your covenant affords, God. May she live eternally in her blessed Savior, our God, Jesus Christ. And may she, in turn, raise up godly seed unto our Lord. For his glory, we pray, God, these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right, so now to our second sermon. (laughs) If you will, turn in in your Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to hope that doesn't do that again. If it does, we're just going to rest and hope that you can hear me. There we are. That's all I needed. I can't stand that. All right. So, we continue our study of Creation Week by moving to the next set of living creatures. Last week, we finished off with verses 20 through 23. We said we will be looking at the first living creatures to be created in the Genesis account. Qualified it thusly, uh, because there probably was the creation of various types of angels on the fourth day. Yet we are not specifically told that in the text, and therefore we uh, will see these as the first living creatures with physical bodies. This, like the separation of the two waters, is done in two stages. First, God called on the sea to abound with living creatures, the first use of that phrase in the text. Also, God called the birds into existence. We saw from this passage God continuing to fill his earthly temple with things pointing to the things in the highest heaven of the heavenly temple. We also saw the contrast once again between light and darkness, as also we saw the creation of, creature, of creatures that will symbolize our, our great enemy from the fall onward. From this we learn, God creates the swarms to fill His earthly temple. God, once again, creates three different classifications of creatures. The tannin displays God's awesome power to, to what does the tannin point us, and we see in this uh, division of animals the separation of darkness and light. Now we will see the three types of land animals. There we will see that God is in a small way imaging himself in the creation of these animals. We will see that this creative act is a continuation of the creative act of of day five in the creation of the flying creatures. This too will point us to the gradual working from lower to higher life forms. Then this this we will see culminated... In the creation of man, the image of God. We will try to nail down the meaning of this statement by God. We will look at how we are to image God and what is the complete and incomplete image. Lastly, we will see how this all points us to the Christ. How he is the root and stem of the creative act as risen Lord and the second Adam. If you will. Uh, Oh wait, don't stand yet. From this we will learn God created the trinity of the land creatures. The doxology of day five applies to these animals. God has not introduced death into his creation. God creates his image. How then are we the image? Man was created for dominion. The image of God is incomplete without a bride. And Christ is the true image of God. You will please stand to honor the reading of God's word this morning. And remain standing as we ask God, the Holy Spirit, to bless the preaching of His Word. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 24, the Word of the Lord reads, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature uh, according to its, its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it will sow. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind... Cattle according to its kind, and, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us now go to the Lord once again in prayer. Blessed and holy God, we thank you. Father, for your goodness towards us, Lord, we thank you for this, your word. Lord, may it be instructive to us. Lord, enlighten our minds. Open our hearts to what is being taught here. And God, may we rejoice in these truths. Not only here... But even as we go forth into the world, Lord, may this light go with us, that we would shine your light into this dark world. And we pray, Lord God, these things in your blessed and most holy Son, Jesus Christ, most wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. God created the trinity of the land creatures, verse 24. God starts day six by commanding that there be animals brought forth from the ground. Much like the water and the ground in day five, the creatures that God created were brought forth from there. This does not mean that there was life or power in the ground. Many try to point this to the Christian and say, See evolution. Not in a 24-hour day, you know. And so... um, that's not what is being said here. God is speaking these creatures into life from the ground. So he's, he's bringing them forth from that. What was brought forth was three types or classes of animals. Cattles, creeping, cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. These are clearly dealing with the animals in classes. So look at your handout. Um, first we have the cattle which are all... Uh, herd or domesticated animals. These animals point us to the sun. Did you see that? I've got it cattled and out beside it, domesticated sacrificial animals, and the sun. Now, these animals give their lives for us or to us, either as companions, food, or sacrifice. So in all these animals, you would find your kitty cats and your doggies. You'd also find your bovines and your, uh, your herd animals. You know, domesticated uh, pigs, and you eat emu, you can, those kind of animals. All those kind of animals are found here in this. But also we need to understand that in those animals, God also takes the sacrificial animals. The animals that are given to man to make sacrifice unto him. Um, So the reason that we see the sun in here is that very reason. First, uh, We see in John one twenty nine, and it reads... The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Christ is uh, imaged there as as a uh, lamb. Turn now, if you will, to Revelation chapter 5 in the back. And and I didn't print this out and just read it to you like normal, but just to save me, because I'm going to read the whole chapter. And, uh, and I didn't want to carry that up here with me. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. where the Lord reads, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven... Or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll, or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll, or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll, and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures... And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, And thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor, glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the... Twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Man, did I have the time to unpack all that. We, we, man, you, you just stop, we'd stop in Genesis for a couple weeks and just hang out in Revelation. But the thing that we need to understand here is the imagery. This is Jesus Christ standing in heaven after his resurrection... Being the only one worthy. Now notice he is imaged as a ruling creature first. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then next, next he's imaged as the sacrificial lamb that John called him that takes away the sins of the world. And because of that sacrifice, he is worthy to come up to the Ancient of Days and take the scroll, which is the final will and testament for the world given to the Son. I wish I could unpack it. I really do. And... And he's saying, the world's now yours. That is what we see in the liturgical responses of the saved in heaven, the church on earth, and the angels, which were all represented there respectively. Right? The 24 elders. It is the entirety of the church falling down and worshiping. That's what we're doing now. We're casting our crowns before the great God of the universe through Jesus Christ, by the power of His Holy Spirit. And so when we see these animals created, we're seeing God saying, Look to my son. Look to my son. This is the way I am going to reveal myself to you. We often are asked the question, Why is it that God created anything at all? Right? Is that not the, the nihilist answer? Right? Everything's just going to be the way it is. God's sovereign and he already knew how everything was going to be. And if if he already knew how everything was going to be, it could not be any other way, right? Or he really didn't know it. We just get really philosophical, right? And just scramble our brains and just lose hope. If God did this and he knew it was going to end this way, then he planned it. And if he planned it and it was going to turn out this way, why did he do it at all? So that you may know him. Amen. So that you may know him completely, he said, well, yeah, but he could have loved us and been merciful and we could have been without sin and pain and death. Yes, but you would not have known his justice and you would not have known his wrath and surely you would never have known his mercy. Amen. Is this not what a husbandman does when he goes to win his bride? This is what I'm like. This is who I am. Love me. That's what courtship is, men. We can be masculine all we want. Going to win a wife. No. You're going to get her to see how you are going to be the best to love her out of all others. Right? As Chesterton says, to make a choice is to reject all other choices. I'm choosing my wife. And she is choosing me to the exclusion of all other people. All other people. Jesus Christ chose his wife. He came to the earth and died for her. And he has given her his life by cleansing her through his blood. Greatest romance story ever told. Why? Well, because if we read Ezekiel, we were covered in our own blood, laying naked by the road. Ready to lay with any suitor that would come along. A whoring, it was called in the King James. We were filthy. We were unworthy. What did he do? He said, you know what? I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to remove this filth from you, these things that make you unclean, and I'm going to cleanse you, and I'm going to make you unclean. Not only that, I'm going to add you to me, and you're going to be my body on the earth. told you I could just go on and on. So next, we have the creeping things, um, and they're not insects. Uh, they're probably most likely speaking of rodents. So, you know, little rabbit bunnies and, and squirrels and all those cute little things that will bite you if you grab them. Um, these things are not like we think about them. Rodents are usually considered to be nasty and have uh, insects and mites and all these different things. These, uh, these were the ones that lived on the earth. They were, as it were, creeping about. You know, if you watch a squirrel, you watch. Rats, you watch rodents, they they creep about. Um, So they live on the earth. And remember, there's no sin, so they weren't like what we think about. And these, uh, as last week, swarm or creep and represent the Spirit gathering the gifts and the people of God. Lastly, we have the beasts of the earth. These are the wild beasts, later predators, who rule. So when you go into an area... Right? You, the first thing you should ask is, what animal rules here? Well, unfortunately, because of the state of North and South Carolina, the thing that rules here is a coyote, the most nasty animal in the world. But, well, not the most, but one we'll of know. But if you go to Africa, the lion rules. Why? Because then nobody mess with the lion. They don't mess with lions. They know better. Right? They are the ruling animal in that area. It's the very reason... Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah because he is ruler. He is ruling. Um, so when we see this, uh, we should think of, of God because God is the ruler of all things. Um, they, these are more territorial and ruling, and they represent the Father. Next we see the doxology of day 5 applies to these animals in verse 25. We are told by Moses that God blessed the sea and flying creatures. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. The same blessing can be applied here. The reason that we think this is because for whatever reason, God divided the creation of the living creatures into two days. There is little doubt that there is a connection between the three groups of living creatures. The sea, flying, and land creatures are all created by God in sequence and are connected. We should not think that because the fish produce more ...quickly than land animals that this does not apply. Birds do not produce any faster than many mammals or most mammals. So, God is blessing them not with rapid reproduction, but with progeny in general. They're able to have children. They're able to have offspring, um, to use that language. And this is said to be good, which leads to our next point. God has not introduced death into his creation, verse 25... Notice that God calls this situation good. There is no sense in which we can inject the death of these creatures into a good system. To do so is to be a uniformitarian. That is to make God uh, and his word to be uh, synchronized with science. Science shows this and so we're going to try to make God's word conform to that mold. Or pattern. Now, I want to warn you, we are all guilty of this in some senses. We'll read our Bible, and I'm going to hit a couple of you, so watch it. You're going to be reading your Bible, and you're going to say, but science says something different than what God's Word says. And if you struggle to try to make that conform to what science says, you're a uniformitarian, and more than likely a minimalist. Big words, that means you're leaving the text of Scripture and believing science rather than God. It's the simplest way to understand it. We don't want to do that. As I said uh, somewhat crudely last week, who cares what the scientist says? His words mean nothing to me. I only care what the Bible says. Science has its place. I'm not anti-science. Don't misread that. But when there's a conflict, God wins. God wins. Yeah, and, and, and here's how we know that that should be true we can we can be pragmatic in this area and help you understand this these same scientists say that the baby in the womb is not a baby but a clump of cells and I can't believe that until you see show me a woman who got pregnant and had a kitten <laughs> if it's going to be anything else it is a human being in that stage of development right? debate's over you get an acorn, what is it? It's an oak tree in that form, in that stage of its life. It is an oak tree. Same thing. The baby in the womb is a child. And if we kill that child, it is murder. Amen. And so, forget science. I was trying to find a good, clean way to say it. Forget science. Worry about what the Word of God tells us. Trust that first. Alright, so... We see that he's blessed this reproduction, um, and, and there's no way that this can fit death into it. Not only this, this is not just my opinion, this is exactly what Paul says in Romans 5.12. The Word of God reads, Therefore, just as though one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, the cause of all sin. Death came on the scene only after Adam sinned. Only after Adam sinned. Paul says that death came through sin. Thank you, Robert, for pointing that out to me 20, 12 years ago, 14 years ago. This excludes the very evidence that some would bring for millions of years of the fossil record. We cannot ignore the fact that for this interpretation of events to be so, there had to be death in the world before Adam was created. There had to be. For two reasons. Death comes through sin. Animals don't sin. Only men in the image of God, sin. So sin could not have come through the creatures. I mean, death couldn't come through the creature's sin. It had to come through man's sin. Nobody, nobody that I've ever read or heard of believes that man has been on the earth for less than 6,000 years. I mean more than 6,000 years. No scientist believes that. Didn't come on the scene until 6,000 years ago. We cannot have sin before 6,000 years. Thus, the fossil record that we find has to be less than 6,000 years old. Or at least no, much, no more than that. Okay? If we say that, then Paul is wrong in Romans 5. Do y'all see that? Make sense? Okay. God created His image. In verse 26a, we see that God here gives us a glimpse into His Trinitarian nature. He says, let us. This points to the plurality of God's person. This is dismissed by many in the church today as a literary device. They tell us that there is no way that this meaning was what the original reader would have understood. Now I want you to think about what they're saying when they say that. This would never have been understood by the first readers of the book of Genesis. There's no way they would have understood that. Okay, well granted, maybe they wouldn't have. I think there's probably evidence that that's not true, but, but... Setting that aside, let's take that as whole. By this logic, no prophecy that's not literally talking about Jesus of Nazareth being born in Bethlehem can prophesy the coming of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the original readers never would have understood it that way. So now you've just proven too much. You've proven that no one could have known, and all God's predictions weren't predictions, they just were happenstance, at best. It looked like Jesus was like this over here, but he couldn't mean that because Isaiah would have never thought his readers would have thought that. Peter tells us Isaiah didn't know what he was talking about half the time. They were searching and looking into these things to know when the Christ would come. He didn't know any more than they did. So it's very unlikely that he would worry about what his original readers would have understood it to be when he himself didn't fully understand it. Okay. Alright, so uh, others will tell us that, um, that this was not God speaking to others in the Godhead. This was not the Father speaking to the Son and the Spirit, but that He was speaking to the angels or creation. Now, the first and terminal problem with this is that there is no reason to think such a thing. As it places Elohim as a companion to the two possible audiences. God would be saying, let me and you angels create man in mine in your image. Okay, so the problem is that means that God created the angels in his image. And we're nowhere told that at all. It's not even hinted at. But not only that, God can't share his image with the angels because there are none like him. Psalm eighty-six-eight says, Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. Nor are there any works like your works. We also could go to Isaiah 44, which tells us there is none besides you, O God. Right? There's only one God. And if we're made in His image, then we don't share images of the the image of the angel. The second... uh, Oh, wait a minute. I use the angels in that illustration because that God was talking to the creation... And that we are somehow created in the image of God and the creation is too stupid to deal with. I mean, it's just the dumbest <laughs> thing that you could say. Literally. I hope I didn't hurt anybody's feelings. But if you hold to that, we need to talk afterwards. The second is a, a as big and maybe more terminal than the first problem. It is, if this is true then, we have no reason to think of man as anything better than a cow. If we are not given our value as image bearers of the one true God, then we have no more value than any other living creature. So if you can exterminate ants and termites, and listen, if you come to my house and find an ant, the exterminator is close behind you, trust me. My wife hates an ant. What does she say, Robert? The ants are coming. The ants are coming. <laughs> right? If you can exterminate ants and termites, then you can exterminate people. Now, if you can't see that problem, again, see me after the service. We need to talk. I'll give up my lunch to help you see this because it's very important. Um, And if there's not many of you, I'll just take you to the... well, we're eating. We're eating here. Uh Oh, That's even better. All right, so what we have here... uh, so what we have to say is that the triune God created man in his own image. This means that God has stamped his image into us from the creation. So what we need to see is in the ancient world when they would seal something, it ain't like our seals and they didn't have ink and blotters and, you know, they just put this little... No. It was, they would take wax or clay that would harden and they would melt it or they would put it on whatever they were sealing and they would take this stamp that was a reverse image of whatever that guy sealed The, the where we get the stamp tax from that's what they were doing they were stamping documents that is the picture we're given here God has pressed his image onto us he has pressed his image onto us that we um, will see in Genesis 9 6 uh, shortly This is where our value comes from. Mankind has no more value than the animals and the insects if that is not true. Why should it matter if men are called and slaughtered like cattle if they are not made in God's image? Also notice that God here for the third time uses the word create. So again, look at your handout. So in chapter 1, God creates all things. That's the Father. He's created everything, and he rules over everything, pointing back to our last section. Then he creates the tanning, that is uh, the spirit, the tanning being the chief of the swarmers. And then created man, and that is the son. And we're going to see that more in our last point. All right? So um, also notice if it, uh, we see from this the connection... With the three instances and the Trinity. How then are we the image? There are several theories as to the meaning of this image. The reason is this image has been wrecked in us. Just as you would take a beautiful picture, if you took a knife to it, that picture now is going to be distorted. There's going to be parts hanging down, it's not going to be tight, it's not going to be taut, and the image is going to be distorted. Likewise, we have the image of God, but it is now distorted. It has now been wrecked by sin. Um, we, there, the picture remains, but it's been, been distorted. Some point to our soulishness and emotions. They say that this is the only thing meant here. We have personality, and we are eternal in that part of us. right? Others say it is our triunity. We are body, soul, and mind, or spirit. They say that the, this points to God, Father, and Son. Uh, to God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I would not haggle over these, except to say that I believe that both have elements of truth. We are in some way just like God in a creaturely manner. Let me get this. Let me be very, very careful here. We are just like God in a creaturely way. Right, so I, I'm a twoist. You know what a twoist is? I believe that there's two. Things in the world. In all the universe. There is the uncreated God. And then everything else. We are creatures. We are made in the image of God. We have higher value than the rest of the animals. We see that in the climbing. From the, the fish and the birds. Then to the land animals. Now to us. We're climbing in value. Uh, as it were uh, reaching back up to heaven. But, but what we see here. Is we have to understand There is everything in the universe except for God, and then there's God. There's nothing like Him. He's outside of all things. He's not contained in it. We're not pantheists, right? We don't believe that God is somehow out there in a tree. We believe that God is everywhere at one time because He's above everything. He's above and outside everything. Reference back to what I said about holiness in our first sermon. Um, So we see that... uh, That we are in some way, in a creaturely manner, reflecting God. We are creatures with personality and traits communicated to us from God, even though marred and being destroyed. Now, when I use the word destroy, this distresses some people. We need to understand, if I take this and I poke holes all through it as a container for water, it is destroyed. It can no longer serve the purpose by which or for which it was created. Likewise... Man has been destroyed in that he does not perfectly reflect the character and nature of God as he was created to do. Do you see that? We long for justice and righteousness even as we struggle to understand the meaning of those concepts and apply them rightly in our day. We are valuable and all of humanity is because we are God's image bearers. Genesis 9.6 Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. The reason you can't murder is because to murder is to attack and destroy the image of God. This is why people murder they're young and do violence to one another. They see and hate the image of God in their fellow man. Even if it's their own offspring. They see and hate the image of God. We are all, before salvation, haters of God. You say, well, I, not, that's not true. I didn't hate God. Every action, everything you ever said, everything you ever thought tells me you're a liar. That is not true. You did and, if you're not saved, do hate God. You do. That's why you sin. That's why Paul says, I didn't know what coveting meant until I heard, thou shalt not covet it. And then I coveted all the more. Why? Because your rebellious heart hates God and will rebel against him unless the blood of Christ has redeemed you. Unless your nature has been changed. Unless, like Ezekiel promised, your heart has been taken out, your stony heart, and you've been given a heart of flesh to love God. Okay? So if you have a problem with that, you can come see me later too. I'm setting up it's just killing. Me. So man was created for dominion. Here we see in, in the flow of the passage is another way that we are imaging God. We are to execute authority. Have dominion over and rule the animals that God has created. We will get a lot more in depth to this next week and even more so in chapter 2. We have this desire and command because we have been given the task of creating an earthly garden. I know this is jumping ahead a bit, but we are to use the animals and uh, and the command, the authority that we're given, to bring God's creation into conformity to the garden temple of Eden. The Lord says to bring the world under subjection. After showing the man the garden. After God plants the garden. He tells man to keep and expand it. In other words. God is showing man. Not just what it should look like. But what it means to make it look that way. This. Though affected by sin. Is still something we desire. And strive for today. Men. Whether saved or lost. Women. Whether saved or lost. Seek. To have dominion. This is the reason for war, rape, nation building philosophy, re-education camps, cutting your grass, planting flowers, and having children. Those all point to the dominion mandate that we were given at creation. It is still present. To deny that it is still something we should do does not change that. And the reason the church is losing our culture is because we've quit fighting for it. Amen. I mean, if we're all going to go out of here on rescue boats, why save a sinking ship? The ship's not sinking, friend. Amen. You need to set your chairs up. That's right. We're going to be here a while, it's ours. And we'll see that next week in more detail. But remember, Paul says all things are given to the church through Jesus Christ. All things. And he lists the world as one of those things. It's not an evacuation. We're not on Dunkirk, guys. We're on D-Day. That's right. If you know your history, you know the difference. The English were running and trying to get back home in Dunkirk, and were getting slaughtered. At D-Day, they did the slaughter. They did the marching in. They did the conquering. Just so you know, next week we're going to explain why that doesn't mean guns. It means the very opposite of it. It means giving our lives and dying for the culture and the people around us, not dominating militarily, no but laying down our lives for them. God's not going to take things back the way sinful man would. Just ain't going to do it. Um, so, notice also the list of animals here. Jordan points out that the phrase, all the earth, in the New King James, should be wild beasts or beasts of the field. Then, uh, then this has all the animals except the tanning. So you see your list of animals on your handouts? The last time you'll have to look at it. We have listed fishes, birds, cattle, beasts of the uh, earth, and creepers uh, or swarmers. All right, so, um, and, and the reason is, as we see in Job 41, only God can rule the tanning. Man can never subdue the tanning. We can't open his face, he says, to open his mouth, to see all of his teeth. And we can never pierce his armor. Why? Because only God destroys the tanning. Only God slays the dragon. Amen. And he has. That's why there is no tanning now. Right? The image of God is incomplete without a bride. Verse 27. We are told that this intention of God is completed in the creation of man. This word man is the word Adam, small a. Though it will be the proper name of our first father, it is the name of mankind. So we are not talking about just one man, but the image bearers of God. He made them in his image, male and female, is his own image. Male and female is the image of God. So when we talk about this image, in mankind, it is not complete Without the distinction between male and female. In our day, we suffer from a case of hatred for the female of our race. This is disguised and sentimental mush about equality. Sentimental mush. We love women. We want them to be equal with men. You can't do that. God made them equal. You can't. (laughs) They're created equal as image bearers and co-heirs with us. of of the redemption that Christ brought us, Paul tells us. So you can't make women equal. Women are already equal. The problem is getting sinful man to quit treating them disequally. But we need to understand what that means. Because what we've done today is to say for a woman to be equal with a man is for her to be a man. Right? She's got to be as strong, she's got to be as fast, That's why, why does it bother you that your little girls are going to compete with little boys who say they're little girls? Because God made men stronger. I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings. They are stronger. They have better muscle uh, forming and toning and they're, they're, they're able to become stronger. I don't care what a woman does. I don't care what she takes. If you put equal to equal, a woman cannot compete with a man physically. And she's not supposed to. That's not what she was created for. She was not created for that purpose. Now, I'm taking a long sermon and making it longer, but we need to understand this has to be where the fight is the hardest and the hottest outside of the abortion issue. If we eradicate the female form, then we lose the image of God. We lose it. We lose it. If femininity is lost, we're doomed. We're doomed. It is a must-have. It is a must-have must for the church, and it is a must-have for the culture. We cannot allow to scrape off what makes women, women. We have to teach our little girls that they are to be women. And we are to teach our young men that they are to protect and guard them. So that if we had a man dressed as a woman go into the women's bathroom here, then I would fully expect if the Owen boys to see it come and say, Hey, Dad, either take your gun or give me your gun because he's getting out of here. (laughs) We're not going to put up with that here because... My friend is in there. The little girl is in there. Taking, you, know, you, you can't do that. You can't do that. So we have to be able to do this because this is nothing more than antagonism to the female form. It is not just that our wives complement us. They complete us. We are then to see the state of marriage as the expected and normal state of mankind. Most are not called to be single, but are just one half of the one they are to be. Turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. If you don't know where that's at, it's right before Matthew. Malachi chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 17. Malachi chapter two. We'll start in verse ten. The word of the Lord reads: Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another, by, by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware. Yet, who brings an, off- an offering to the Lord of hosts? And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion, and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed of your spirit, And let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed of your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now, notice that Malachi says that the multiplication of their wives was treachery. And the reason this is, is the same reason that Christ gave, i.e., God had made them one. Matthew 19, through 6 reads, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, "Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. To them, So then, They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice that though the focus here is putting away their wives in divorce, this would also cover multiplying wives or having more than one wife. So if you're a man in this congregation and you've struggled with the question, Why is it we can't have two or three wives besides the fact that your wife would shoot you? Why can't we do that? Why is it not lawful? Why is it not available? Well, here's the reason. God made the two to become one flesh. God didn't make one and six others to become one flesh. He made two to be one flesh. And Malachi says that if you do this, it's treachery because there's no way you can have a wife of your youth and take another wife, especially if she's younger, and have not your wife covering his altars with tears and weeping for the laws of the covenant that she made with you. It's not allowed. Why isn't it allowed? Because God said no. And God said no because you are to be an example. Notice that um, if, if you unlawfully put away your wife to have another, there is little difference in taking a second wife. Both here pervert God's original plan of two being one flesh. And this is why the true man, an image of God, needed a bride. Christ is the true man, verse 27. This leads to a question. Was there an image from which we were modeled? Could it be that we were imaged after Christ originally? Now this makes us nervous because Jesus was not yet conceived in Mary's virgin womb uh, at the time of the garden. Now. Uh, that is Jesus the man. Did not physically exist. But when we have. Another, then, but then we have another problem. Genesis 3.8 reads. And they heard the sound of the Lord God. Walking in the garden. In the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord God. Among the trees of the garden. What form did God take Here. To walk as a man in the garden, to be heard physically by Adam and Eve. We all know that this is a theophany, that is a fancy word to say a pre-incarnate image of God. God takes on an image, before he comes in the flesh as Christ, and that's a theophany. But if Christ is the image of the invisible God, what other form could this be? For this reason, I believe that this is our Savior in the final form of God-man. Presenting himself in the garden to Adam and Eve. The way this could happen is that God the Son, after his enthronement, is once again transcendent and outside of time. This then means that it is not a stretch for Christ to appear to his people, even if they lived in time before his incarnation. This fits both the clear typology of the apostles, speaking of Christ as the rock and the angel of the Lord, and the other theophanies, and the times, uh, the times that God revealed Himself in human form. Remember, Abraham saw God coming with two angels to him before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The middle man, God. What did He look like? I say, look like Christ. I say, he looked like Christ. He, he, he was Christ, because Christ is the image of the invisible God. If there's an image of the invisible God, it is the son that's his that's his job he shines the light of god in the world it is he who reveals the father to us thus it seems only right that this is the image god modeled our first parents by the christ that would come to redeem us we were created in his image may we receive in the fact rejoice in the fact that from the beginning God has set out to reveal himself to his people. And may we, as his image bearers, go forth and reveal him to others. Amen. Let us pray. Blessed and most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for these truths that you have revealed to us in your word today. We pray, dear God, that you will bless us to understand them and that we will keep them, Lord, that they will be what we rejoice in, that they will be our strength and they will be our joy. And in God, in all this... We'll give you the glory and the honor and the praise. For it is in your blessed and most holy Son, Jesus Christ, wonderful name we pray, amen.